Cool. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, yeah, as you said, my name is Tim. It's good to see you, have you with us uh, this morning. And um, just want to give you a brief kind of update on uh, where the um, where we're at in terms of uh, searching for land. Um, and, and just to kind of start with, uh, you know, the last nine months, uh, we kind of started the process about February, even though the congregation approved the purchase. Uh, it was, you know, our congregational meeting last September. Kind of waited, let, let uh, Aletha get on, on some of their things. And then kind of was February when I, I really began the work. Um, of, of searching and putting a team together for finding the right, the right home for us um, long term. And, and so it's been hard over the last nine months uh, to know how to update because there's been so much, uh, just so much up and down with uh, what's been happening and, and done a lot of uh, kind of individual updates instead of, um, instead of uh, moments like this within the congregation. I think that I, I just want to start by saying I'm, I'm sorry for that. I think, I think I always wanted to just give like a nice like bow wrapped present of everything nice and tidy finished up. Hey, here's where we're going with this. It, it's all over. Here's where we're going to be long term. Um, and that's that was a mistake just because it would have been it would have been so much better for us to walk through the ups and downs of some of the challenges that we've we've experienced over the last nine months for us to pray together as a congregation and experience that um, as a congregation. The one thing I, I, I feel very strongly about is the one thing that I want to be as a church is that we do this uh, together. Whatever this is, we're doing it um, together. And so, so that, just, just my apologies for, for not communicating that over and over again and letting you walk um, with, uh, with us on that journey. Um, and then second, just in terms of update where we're at in the process, um, it was nine months ago we formed a team um, of people. Uh, there were eight, uh, eight of us, including uh, not including myself, so nine of us total. Um, and the thought behind that team was, one, try to get people who are our different age groups within the congregation, uh, but also people who live in the different areas that we have coming from um, here. And, and it, was, it was a pretty quick consensus about where we think kind of the centerpiece of where our congregation should land, and that's Midland and 435. Our goal was to land as close to there as we possibly um, could. And, and even in that initial meeting, we had a really promising property that uh, was on the market. It was really one of the only spots we saw available around Midland and 435. And so we thought kind of early on, hey, this is going to be a quick process. Um, and then it got weird. Uh, the, we literally could not get that pro- the owners of that property, which is a church. Um, uh, there's not a church on the building just so, or on the land, just so we're clear. It's, it's just land. But we could not get them to call us back. Like, I mean, like for like three months, like we could not get them to call us back. It was so bad. I would, I would drive to the church and try to find people there. I actually went in one day and walked around the building. It was unlocked and there was a car there. And then I, after like 10 minutes, I was like, if, we act, if I actually run into someone right now, this is going to be very uncomfortable for both of us. And so I left. Um, but finally, we, uh, we got a hold of them uh, via the phone. And once we started negotiating, it was just clear they wanted much too much uh, money for the property. And so we gave them a final offer. They said no, and we walked away. And so then at that point, we, the team kind of reconvened. We, we, we regrouped. We looked at what do we have, what's on the table. Um, and, and we prayed. Um, and, and not surprisingly, a couple weeks after that meeting, and maybe even the next week after that meeting, uh, the church called us back and um, offered us the land for just, uh, just 25000 more than what our final, um, final offer was. And so we had some properties we were looking at still. We, we, we finished the work on all of those. Um, and, and now we're in a position where we've called the church, we've said, we, we accept your final offer, and we've entered into the process of um, uh, doing our due diligence on the land, making sure everything's uh, squared away, and, and, and for, uh, just to be clear, that there's still a long way to go in all of this. Um, you know, this, isn't a, uh, this is not a gift wrapped up neatly, uh, and all, all things are done. Uh, it's been, there's been some just strange conversation back and forth uh, over this piece of property, um, over our, our time, but we are, we're in a position where we may have 
uh, may have our home. It's literally about a mile straight west. Um, if you turn uh, left on the 75th and once it becomes Midland, um, there's actually there's a sign out in front of the land now. It says uh, it says "You Go God." Um, it's it's a uh, it's a church that no longer exists, but it's you'll you'll not miss that sign now because I said like literally it's the letters "You Go God." So anyway, uh, that's where the that's where the land is. It's about a mile straight west of here, and so we're we're really we're asking you now to to pray. Um, and in particular, I'm asking you to pray kind of for three things. Um, one is First, that we'll, we'll finalize the deal and that this, uh, this will be an opportunity to further both um, the, the, the church's mission, which is decided this is not the right the place they want to be. They're, they meet down more in South Lenexa. Um, and secondly, that it will further our own um, mission. And I want to be clear about this. For, for me, um, being in a building is not about us primarily. Um, while you know, easing the setup and tear down low would be nice, that's not primarily want, why I want uh, or hope to have a permanent location. The reality is just, there's just so much more you can do missionally with the building than without. Um, and, and two quick examples. One is um, you know, I have a real strong desire to see a preschool um, in our, our building uh, long term. That um, My own family, we live kind of more East Shawnee, and, and we have to drive a long way to get to a preschool that we, we felt really good about. Um, and thinking about some of, of the ways in which this part of, of Shawnee is under-resourced, one of them, I think, is primary education or early childhood education. And so thinking through, could we have a preschool um, out of our, our building? We can't do that at Trail Ridge. They won't let us, um, obviously. That's, that's a missional opportunity um, for us. Uh, secondly, I think through our partnership with Advice and Aid, one of the things they've identified, we've identified, is once the moms complete the Bridges program, often there isn't an easy transition into a church community for those moms. And we've tried to do that through, uh, through inviting some of those moms into MOPS. Um, many of you were a part of hosting or helping the Thursday night dinner um, um, uh, for the, the Bridges moms this past week. It would be amazing if we could invite them to a MOPS, not down in South Olathe, um, which is a long drive for many of those moms, but instead right down the street from Advice and Aid, where they're already familiar with, as well as the fact we could host those Thanksgiving dinners. They could come, be, you know, come inside our building, get more comfortable with us, our people, and, and begin to, to find ways to integrate them into the, the community. They're out, like I, those are, and there are many more opportunities like that. And so when I say we need a building to further our mission, it's not about us and not setting up and tear down. It's, it's more opportunities we can engage our community. Um, so that's one. Pray for the sale to go through so we can further our mission. This, this could be a blessing to their church as well. Um, secondly, obviously, pray for just wisdom and discernment around uh, if this is the right move. We think it is, right? We put the team together. We had people who were in real estate, people who have built before, people who, who just have uh, insight. And so we, uh, um, we think this is the right thing, but we, we always want to be attentive to God's leading and God's direction. Um, and if they're a red flag, if we're missing something, we want to see it. So pray for that. Pray for, for just wisdom and attentiveness to God. And then thirdly, um, and finally, uh, pray for the, the financial resources to build um, once we uh, buy, actually have a piece of land. One of the things that is, has been harder for us as a, as a campus um, here at Christ Community, but I'm glad for, I'm glad for this difficulty, um, like truly, is every other uh, of our campuses, um, with the exception of downtown really, um, but Brookside and Olathe started with a building and all the financial resources in place before the campus started. Um, we have been the opposite of that. We started with the people, um, but not the building or the financial resources in place to build and propel us um, forward into a building. And, and what I like about that is that puts us in the position right now to, to have to be dependent on God and to walk through this and to make, you know, make our story end with God as our provision, um, not, not starting. And to be in a place of dependence and weakness and hopefulness of what God will do and provide for us. And so that's why we need to be praying um, for uh, once, we, once we have the land, we'll do our, our architectural studies, all that. 
Um, but uh, God needs to provide, and so we want to trust him for that. So I'm going to ask uh, Dennis Stewart. Dennis was one of the guys on our team um, that helped us, uh, uh, you know, search and look. And uh, uh, we actually, Kristen, can you, do you have a mic? <coughs> Just realized we didn't get Dennis a mic. Um, he can, he's, he's, he's got a voice on him, but not that, that loud. Um, but uh, so, again, three things to pray for. Um, sale, uh, the, the, the building to further our mission. Two, wisdom discernment for us as we go through, and three, the, the financial resources for us to be able to, um, to build. So I asked Dennis to pray, pray for us, and, and pause and, and take a moment, and then, yeah. So Heavenly Father, we just come before you uh, humbly. You've shown yourself to us. You've uh, demonstrated your faithfulness to us. So right now, we just pray, Lord, that as a church, we would seek you. We pray for your wisdom. In fact, you tell St. James, if you lack wisdom, ask. And we're asking. Lord, uh, we just thank you once again for your faithfulness. Thank you for the prayers of this body. Lord, we pray that you would go before us. You'd work out all the details. Lord, that we pray that even uh, if the cell goes through, that you would go ahead and bless the land. For, Lord, this is your property. This is your church. It's our desire just to be obedient and Lord to be your image bearers in the community you placed us. So uh, thank you again for uh, helping us walk through this process and answering prayer when we thought uh, this property was no longer available. We thank you for your confirmation. And now I uh, just pray for Tim and for our leadership that they would continue to just lead us and guide us in the path that you have for us. And we look forward with anticipation of how you're going to answer these prayers. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dennis. All right. Well, I said let's pray for God's uh, wisdom and discernment. And so now we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. Um, this is from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, in this series on the life of Jeremiah, we've been trying to, to say kind of one basic thing, which is that you're... Um, your life is too big for you. And what we don't mean or what we're not saying by that is that at some point in your life, you're going to encounter something, you're going to face a trial, you're going you're to have something in front of you that's too big for you, and at that point, then your life is too big for you. No. No, if you think you're in control of your life, that you have the wisdom, the resources, um, the wherewithal to navigate you through this life, then I think part of what we've been saying is if that's true, then you're settling for too small of a life. The series has been asking you just basic questions like, what, 
what is it that you want? And I love, uh, Eugene Peterson quotes him in his book, Run With the Horses, but the biochemist Erin Chargraff in his book, Heracletian Fire, he asks these questions this way. Is what do you want to achieve? Greater riches, cheaper chicken, a happier, longer life? Is it power over your neighbors you're after? Are you only running away from your death? The question I've been asking myself since we started this series is, is what, Tim, what do you really want with your life? The most comfortable life possible? As much admiration from other people that you can get in your life? To hide from the, the consequences or the reality of death in your life as long as you can? That's why this book of Jeremiah, it's connected with me so deeply. Because in Jeremiah's own life, God had given him a message, words to say, that no one was ever going to listen to. And for speaking those words, for being a prophet of the Lord, he was going to be thrown in a pit, thrown into prison several times. Literally thrown into a dried out well at one point, just left there to sink slowly into the mud and die. And so unsurprisingly, as you read through Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, it's a long book, but as you read through it, there there are many moments where Jeremiah is ready to quit. And throughout the series, you've kind of zeroed in on one moment where Jeremiah basically throws up his hands and says, God, I'm done with what you've given me to do. And God goes to him and God asks him a question. Jeremiah 12, 5, this is the message translation of this verse. So Jeremiah, if you're worn out in this foot race with men, what makes you think you can race against horses? God says to Jeremiah, your standards, they they are too low. And so are mine in my own life. That God means for Jeremiah to excel and to flourish in a way Jeremiah had not yet imagined or or, or, uh, thought possible. That a life of faith is a life of risk and courage. A life of moving beyond what, what we're capable of. A life of running with horses. So this morning, I, wanna, I just want to reflect on, that. okay, well, how do we do that? How do we not settle for a small life? How do we not keep our expectations or our standards too low? How do we run with horses? And, and Jeremiah 31 is maybe the most hopeful passage in all of the book of Jeremiah. And it's really about one thing. It's about knowing God personally. And if this passage says anything to us this morning, it says, it says one thing, which is you can know God. The all-sufficient, powerful creator of the universe who lacks nothing, you can know him. And that raises all kinds of questions, and I want to push into those questions this morning, which is, is first, why is it so hard to know him? I'm sure all of us have encountered that. Why does it seem like if God wants to know us, why is it so hard? Um, two, what do we need? to do to know him, like what's on us? And third, how can we have the sense of confidence that we, we know him? So first, why, why is it so hard for us to know God? And, and I'm a pastor, so obviously I believe God exists. Um, but one of the hardest parts of being a Christian is that there, there will be moments within your life, and they're all over the Psalms, they're all over the Scriptures. So it's not just me who, who's saying this, but there, there are going to be moments in your life when you, you either need the, the personal presence of God and he's not there, or you might go through long stretches of, of, of your life where it just doesn't seem like God is there. Like you know him. He feels withdrawn. And I would say that's probably especially true if you, if you do not believe in God or struggle to believe in God. 
And then if God does exist, why does he feel so withdrawn? Why doesn't God like take the stars and form the, the, the sentence, I exist, God exists? Why, why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he make himself more physically available to us? And I, listen, I understand. I think those things myself. But if that's our line of thinking, then the book of Jeremiah, the prophet of Jeremiah would say, we, we are a bit off. And I want to... I Unpack that by looking at the first two verses of our our passage, uh, verses 31 and 32. Hear these again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now what's going on here is that people who were saved dramatically by God the Israelites, the nation Israel, they were saved out of slavery um, in, in Egypt and into, uh, into the promised land. And so, so they had these dramatic evidences, moments of God's existence, and they were so close. They, they had such personal knowledge to God that God actually describes himself as their husband here in these verses. They had absolute intellectual certainty that God exists. Like they experienced the direct uh, revelation and salvation from God, but in the end, that didn't matter. And Jeremiah, throughout the story of the Bible, the life of Jesus, hits this theme repeatedly that our problem as human beings is not primarily an intellectual uh, one. It's, it's, it's not that God hasn't written his name, God exists on the stars. There are lots of people who have, direct, have had direct encounter with God, and it didn't matter in the end. Verse 32, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And I don't want to skate past the intellectual problem of the existence of God. That there aren't, I'm not saying there aren't intellectual difficulties in believing in God. But I'm saying the scriptures say there's something else. There's a bigger problem we have. And that bigger problem is that you can know him. You can have absolute intellectual uncertainty that God exists and you still want nothing to do with him. In fact, it, Jeremiah is actually saying more than that. Jeremiah is saying God could be your spouse and you would still leave him for another God. Do you see why it's, it's, it can be hard for us to know God, to have a personal knowledge of God? And there are a number of places where Jeremiah unpacks this further. Why, why Israel broke the covenant? And I think the best place might be Jeremiah 2, verses 7 and 8. And here's when, when Jeremiah is laying out his case for why the covenant is broken, there's going to be a new covenant. Here's one thing Jeremiah says, two verses in Jeremiah 2, verses 7 and 8. Let's hear it. I brought you into a plentiful land. God is speaking. I brought Israel into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Now there are three things happening in these two verses. Roadblocks to why it's hard for you and I to know God. And the first is that we experience failed religious leadership. The God says explicitly to his people, those who handle the law did not know me. The people who are supposed to teach the Bible lead his people into a knowledge of himself. They knew God existed, but they didn't know God. They did not know him. And in my own experience, few things make people more bitter towards God than religious leaders who lead not knowing God, but out of their own personal life. And and they do a lot of damage. 
And it's one of my greatest fears. Jeremiah 2 is primarily written to people like, like me, not like you who are our congregants. It's written to religious leadership. Because when religious leaders do not know God, their people often do not know God. They prevent their people from knowing God. And, and I would just say this morning, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, and I know this is hard because if you experience really, truly, deeply failing religious leadership, it's hard to come here. But um, wherever you're at in your journey, please do not judge God for, for how religious leaders claim to represent him or, or what they say about him. Because maybe, maybe they don't know him at all. So it's hard for us to know uh, God because, one, we experience you know, fraudulent religious leadership, one. But two, uh, you and I, we, we disobey God law, God's law. We do not trust God. And so there, there's this theme throughout Jeremiah of, of the people breaking the covenant rules and laws. And here's where we need to be careful, because I think often when we think like, oh, I, I broke a commandment. It's like, oh, I broke this arbitrary rule that God said I can't break and can't do, and therefore I broke the arbitrary rule and now I'm in trouble. But that, that's not quite how it works. It's not, I think of it like this. So when I, was, I lived in Chicago, the, uh, the Dan Ryan Expressway, which kind of cuts right through downtown, the, the posted speed limit there is 55 miles an hour. Um, if you drive 55 miles an hour on the Dan Ryan Expressway, you are going to get run over by cars that are driving 30 miles an hour faster than you. Right, so you, just, you go 75, you go 80 on this interstate. And because, listen, that's, if you want to be realistic and survive, that's what you have to do. And I think we often think of God's rules like that. It's an arbitrary rule. Like the city of Chicago just decided one day, uh, 55 miles an hour. That sounds good um, to us. Um, and, then, and, and then we, you know, we, just, we start driving on the interstate and we think, well, that's not realistic, right? Everyone's going 75, 80. I got to keep up with traffic. I got to keep up with the flow of things. And I think we look at God's law like that. Like, listen, God, that's just unrealistic. If I'm going to keep up with the times, if I'm going to, if I'm going to really uh, keep track with the way the world is going, I, listen, I, I, have to do, I have to do this. I have, to, I have to go 75 instead of 55. And so we ignore the law. We do what we think is best, what we think is right, what we think is realistic. But, the, but God's law, his, his expectations of us, they're not arbitrary rules he set up like speed limits. But that his laws are deeply tied to his, his character, his being. So, for example, just to, just to go right after some controversy, I, I think the Bible teaches that uh, Christians should at minimum uh, give 10% of their income away. Uh, but most people in our culture uh, think that's completely ridiculous, unworkable, unless you're a millionaire, unless you have lots of money, lots of financial resources at your, at, at your disposal. Um, but when I, when I choose to give less than 10% of my own Income. I'm not breaking just a random rule God has has set up that He's trying to impose on me, like He's trying to make me miserable. Instead, it's God is a generous God who's given me life, who's given me breath, who's given me the financial resources at my disposal. He's given me my car, my home, everything that I own. Um, He even gave me His own Son, Jesus. And when I when I say to God, you know, I think you're wrong about that. I'm not going to do that. That's not unworkable. That's that's just that's not realistic. which I've done, I've said to him. My problem is not that I'm breaking an arbitrary law. What I'm actually saying is, is God, I don't, I don't trust you to give me what, what I need. I, I think you're wrong about generosity. I think I'm right and you're wrong. And my problem so much in that moment, it's not with the rule, it's with God himself. And how can I know someone that I don't trust? How, would I even want to know someone I do not trust? The problem with knowing God, it's not intellectual, it's, it's, it's personal. It's, we don't trust, we think he's wrong about things. We, we think he's unworkable, he's not realistic. And, and these rules, these laws, are, they are tied to his character. 
So knowing God, it's hard because one, I don't, I don't trust him a lot of times. Uh, two, we, I think we all probably at some point have ex- experienced a failed religious leadership or we know someone who has. And third, we, we want to know other gods. In Jeremiah 2, it says the prophets prophesied by Baal, which was another god. And, and here's where I think it's easy for us to kind of sit back and say, you know, how dumb could they be? They went to like in another religions and worshiped other gods. Because my guess is none of us will head to a mosque after this and worship Allah for a little bit or go to another. Like none of us like walk into a different religious service. But I think that's misunderstanding the history here. That the, People didn't worship Baal so much because they thought Baal actually existed and they wanted to have a different religion. They worshiped Baal primarily, I think, for two reasons. One is Baal was the rain god. And if you lived in a farming economy. Rain was money. Rain was, rain was wealth, was riches. And so, you listen, you, to worship Baal was to worship money. And the other reason is Baal was a much more, uh, for many reasons, which I will not get into, uh, Baal was, was much more, um, uh, did not have very tight sexual standards. And so you could sleep with whoever you wanted if you worshiped Baal. And so to worship Baal was to worship, um, was, was to worship sex. And so to worship Baal, it wasn't about this God named Baal, this little you know, image. It was about money. It was about sex. It was about comfort. And when you put it like that, then we start to see, oh, like we go, we go to those temples. We worship money. We worship comfort. We worship power. So let's go back to where, to where we started, those moments where we need the personal presence of God, when we want him to be near, when we want, him, we want to know him. It's, it's not just an intellectual problem for us. It's do we really want him? <laughs> do I really trust him? Do I really, do I really want him engaged in my life in, in the personal, intimate level he wants to be engaged? Do I want him to start inf- interfering with me? Do I, do I want an easier life? Do I want a, a lower standard life? Or do I want him? Do I want God? <laughs> and so it's hard to know God for us. That's why it's personal. And yet God wants to know you. And despite everything I just said about all of the ways in which you and I, we we make it hard on ourselves to know God. God wants to know us and you can know God. The Jeremiah, he's listen, he's spoken honestly about how deeply his people have failed their God, and yet God did not give up on his people. And so Jeremiah says, a new day is coming. And so I've just unpacked all the reasons why God abandoned uh, the, the old covenant, why his, his people have, um, had failed him. And, and yet, here's what God says he's going to do now. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No, long, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Again, summing up all those verses, it's saying one thing. You can know God. From the least to the greatest. And you can know God because what this new covenant is saying is God wants to know you. He wants to be so near to you, his own law, which is, again, an extension of himself. He wants that to be written on your heart. He's willing to forgive all of your sin, all of your iniquity, everything you've ever done wrong. He's willing to to forget it, to look past it. And this word know in Hebrew, it's it's not an intellectual knowledge. It's not abstract belief. It's not God exists written on the stars. It's personal. It's intimate. It's actually uh, the, one of the primary words the Hebrews used for, for marriage and through knowing through, um, through sexuality. It's, it's, think of the deepest way two human beings can know one another 
And that's the way in which God wants to know you with that depth, that, that intimacy, that personality, that familiarity. And so as we think about our own lives, what do we need to know him like this? What do we need to know him with this, this sort of personal firsthand knowledge? And I want to say you don't need two things and you do need one thing. So the two things you don't need, first, you don't need a mediator to know God. Right? Jeremiah is explicit about this. No longer shall a brother say to one another or a teacher, know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know the Lord. Which means if you want to know the living God, you actually do not need, and I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say this, you do not need me. You don't need, a, you don't need an elder. You don't need a, now, it doesn't mean you don't need a church, but you do not need someone to welcome you in and say, now you can talk to God because I have opened a way. You don't need another human being to do that. In fact, any human being who tries to do that for you, tries to block excess from you uh, to God, run from them. They're a heretic. You don't need an elder, a congregant, a pastor, a really mature Christian so that God will hear you. You don't need anyone. And that's why, again, I want to hit this drum again. Do not let failed religious leadership keep you from God. That's not how the Bible works. That's not how the, the, the Christian story works. That Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said explicitly, in the new covenant, all Christians are priests. All Christians have direct access to God. Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, said that when we come together as Christians, we form a temple ourselves. That, that, that in our own bodies, God dwells through the Spirit. You do not need anyone else to speak to God. I think this is especially important for students and children because often early in your life, your faith is kind of negotiated through your parents. You don't need your parents to pray to God. You can pray to him at school over lunch or before a test. You can pray to him during a game when things are not going the way you want them to. We don't need a mediator to know God. You can know him on your own personally. So that's one. The second thing you don't need, you don't need to be good enough to know God. Uh, the last thing that Jeremiah says in this, this passage I didn't read is that in this new covenant, uh, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And I think all of us, there are moments when we think we remember something we did, we, we think about something that's going on in our life and we think, surely God, this, God is finally fed up with me. I finally did the thing, I crossed the line, right? I'm going to pray the same prayer again I've prayed a hundred times. God doesn't want to hear it. But notice the flow of this passage. God, in verse 32, says, I'm a husband who's been cheated on and has, has lost my spouse. And then in verse 34, he says, I will, no, I will not remember your sins anymore. I will forgive your iniquity. That I, what is it that you think in your life means that God wouldn't want to know you? What do you think is true of you that, that would mean God couldn't know you or you couldn't know God? Because whatever that is, God does not remember it. So why should you? And maybe you're wondering, okay, well, how, how does that work? How does God forgive the worst I've done, overcome our sin? It's because God, when God wants to know us, when he wants to be in a relationship with us, he doesn't just, it's not just like getting coffee over Starbucks, right, with a friend. It's not just, it's not having a friendship that if, if you do cross the line, you could lose that friendship. No, it's, it's, he wants to know you through a covenant. That what you need to know God is, a covenant. And I listen, a covenant is a super religious word. Let me just say two things. A covenant is really two things. It's a promise and it's a relationship. 
that becoming a Christian is, it's a lot like getting married. I remember when Missy and I got married, and I, for the first time, like, actually read the vows and realized, this is, these are some outlandish promises. I don't think either one of us are actually going to keep these, even though we're going to speak them to one another, um, right? Like, no matter, whether you're really sick um, or really healthy, I'm going to love you, you know, the same. Listen, Missy's been sick at times. That has not been true, Okay. Um, I, it's not happened. Um, in, in wealth or in, in poverty, no matter what the circumstances, I'm, this person has all of me. That's what, that's what you're promising in marriage. And I, I mean, I remember thinking before I got married, can I actually do that? And, and God, God wants to know you in that way where it's not just a let's meet for Starbucks and let's talk, but it's a covenant relationship where you come before God and you say, listen, I, will, I want to do everything that you command. I want to know you. I want to trust you. You are the most important thing about me. God, you make promises. And yet what makes the, the new covenant unique is it's not built on the promises we make to God. It's built, the new covenant is built on the promises God makes to us to forgive our iniquity, remember our sins no more. That we can know him with a, a personality, a relationality, a, a, an intimacy. We don't need a priest, right? We can know him directly. So much so that his law is within our heart. Even when we sin, even when we fall short, we, we want to be something different. We want to be, be something else. The covenant is a promise first, um, but it's a relationship second. <clears throat> that you can know, you can know God, you can know God personally, but not casually. And that's what covenant changes. It's not. It's this is not a casual relationship. God is extending an offering to you, and I think that's the question we have to reflect on: is do you approach Jesus through a covenant or just casually? Is he your only hope in life or death, or is he your only hope when all other areas have been exhausted? And what makes Jeremiah unique in his moment, in his time, in his life, is that he knew God and he had a covenant relationship with his God. And I think if if you and I are to sit back and reflect, okay, how do I know? Do I have a covenant relationship with God? Do I know God like this? I think there's, at least in Jeremiah's life, there's sort of two indications Right, to make a diagnosis of yourself. If you have these two qualities, you probably are in a covenant, covenant relationship with, with God. And those two things are courage and hope. Jeremiah has courage because he always resists the crowd. He never went along with everybody else. And it meant that when, when everyone thought everything was fine and everything was good and nothing bad was going to happen, Jeremiah was the one saying, listen, bad things are going to happen. We don't know God. We're, we're breaking his covenant. Babylon, this foreign nation, they're going to come and invade. Everything's going to fall apart. You need to repent. You need to turn back to God. So when everyone else is saying, Jeremiah's crazy, everything's just fine, Jeremiah was the one person who knew God and knew the truth. But on the flip side, when everything else was falling apart and everyone else was ready to give up and there was no hope, Jeremiah was the one person who could preach good news, right? This Jeremiah 31 is in the midst of everything falling apart, and Jeremiah has good news in the midst of bad news. He never just goes with the flow. He never just goes with the crowd. The people who know God have courage to be different. And I love the way Eugene Peterson um, puts it, reflecting on Jeremiah's life. He says this, Um, It is, of course, far easier to languish in despair than to live in hope. For when we live in despair, we don't have to do anything or risk anything. We can live lazily and shiftlessly with an untarnished reputation for practicality current with the way things appear. It's fashionable to espouse the latest cynicism. If we live in hope, we go against the stream. Now, I think we live in a really cynical age. And I think one thing that should mark Christians is courage to flow against that. 
Jeremiah had encouraged, and in the face of a very hopeless situation, an invading army, Jeremiah didn't let his eyes receive him, deceive him. He, he knew God. He knew what was really happening. And because he had listening, been listening to God all his life, rather than pack up shop, live in despair, give up, not risk anything, not do anything, Jeremiah, no, he gets, his courage gets stronger. He gets more defiant. And I think Christians, we, have, we should have this quality of courage to risk and to enter in when others run away. If you know God, like you know God personally, and you have that confidence in that relationship, you will have courage, one. But two, you'll have hope. And I love what G.K. Chesterton says about hope. Um, he was a British Christian in the early 1900s. He said this. He says, it's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. Like all the Christian virtues, it's unreasonable as it is indispensable. I love that line because what he's saying is hope, hope only means anything until everything's hopeless. In other words, if you, if you still think you have the resources, if you still think you have the wisdom, the strength, the wherewithal, then you don't have hope. You have money, you have, you have your own smarts, you have your own abilities, you have a plan. It's only in the face of certain loss, certain death, that hope means anything at all. It's only when things are hopeless that hope matters. And one of my favorite moments in Jeremiah's life um, is there's a moment when uh, Babylon has invaded. Everything's falling apart. Jeremiah's in prison, and he was in prison in a part of, of a Jerusalem that would have been a public place, probably in a courtyard of a king of some point. So he would have been in prison, but lots of people would have seen him. Um, and Babylon has not quite gotten to Jerusalem, but they're in Jeremiah's hometown of Anatote. So Jeremiah's in prison. His cousin comes from Anatote, his hometown, and says to Jeremiah, hey, I'm willing to sell you a piece of land back in Anatote. You know, I'm going to sell this land, and I want to get rid of it, and you can have it, Jeremiah. <clears throat> And everyone's like, that, you don't buy land in wartime, in case we're not clear. Like, that's a terrible investment. Like, Babylon is going to soon own that land. Jerusalem's going to be expelled. They're not going to own Anatole anymore. This is a dumb investment. And so everyone's watching. Jeremiah, who's been saying for 40 years, this, it's all going to fall apart. Babylon's going to come in, and they're going to invade. And now his cousin's come, and he's offered him to buy this piece of property. And, and Jeremiah buys it. And he says to everyone around, I'm buying this land because, yes, Babylon's going to come in. We're going to exile, but God is going to give us this land back. And my descendants will live on this property I'm buying. Right? It's a terrible investment. It's a terrible idea, unless you have hope. It's a completely unreasonable purchase, hopeless, which is why Jeremiah buys it. And if you know God with, with intimacy, with, with personality, with the depth of relationship, then... You have hope, even when things are hopeless. So how do you and I have that hope, right? How do we, you know, this series hasn't been like live like Jeremiah, but, but he's a case study, and he knows God, and so he has incredible hope, incredible courage. So how do, we, how do we have that? How do we get that? How do we know that we can know God? Well, the old covenant has been broken, and God, who had saved Israel out of Egypt, who had made this nation his, his own personal possession, his, his bride, who had rescued them, given them a land to live in, they, they end up not trusting him. They turn to other gods. They give up on him. They stop knowing him. And so what does God do? He, he says to his people, to Israel, okay, you, you divorced me. You cheated on me. You left me. How about a new covenant? How about we start over? And he offers them a new covenant to get even closer to them. This time, he's not, he's not going to give them law 
on, on tablets from a mountain written. for them. He's going to write it on their own hearts. He's going he's to get inside of them into their hearts. They're not going to know God through a sacrificial system, through bringing animals to a priest who makes a sacrifice. They're going to know God individually, personally, from the least of them to the greatest. And he's going to forgive all of their sins. He's going to wash them clean. He's going to remember their iniquity no more. And how does God, how does God enact this covenant? How does this, this covenant happen? Not because God uh, sends a prophet like Jeremiah, but, but this time God will send his own son Jesus. And in Jesus, we have a God who left heaven to come to know us, to move into our neighborhood, to experience what we experience, to suffer what we have suffered, to prom- make promises to us, to teach us, to lead us, and ultimately go to a cross for us. And if there was ever a moment of absolute hopelessness, if you'd ever thought nothing good will come from that, it would have been when Jesus died on the cross. And yet that moment of his death is the very moment from which springs all of the hope you and I can live in as Christians. That cross is our hope. And on that cross, he saved us. On that cross, he made promises to us to pay all of the the price for our iniquities and our sins. The reason why you should not have to remember your own sin is because it was paid for on the cross by Jesus. And so when the author of Hebrews uh, reflects on Jeremiah 31 and on the cross, he writes of Jesus that by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And what he means is that Jesus on the cross, through one act, saves you and I so that our sins are remembered no more, so that his law is written on our hearts, so that we don't have to be good enough to know God. We don't have to earn our place at the table. Jesus has earned that place at the table for us, which means if you're in covenant with Jesus, your past sins are forgiven, your current sins are forgiven, and your future sins will be forgiven. And when we think of that, when we reflect on that, when we look at all God has done to know us in covenant, how could we not trust him? How could we not give him our complete unwavering obedience? How could we look at all that Jesus has done for us and think he wants to just know us casually? That we could take or leave what he thinks our lives should look like or be. But even more than that, how, how could you and I, despite all we might face in life, how could we ever want to give up or quit? Shrink back into a small life. Just live for comfort and ease, running from death. Live like everybody else. Live for money, for comfort, for ease, for power. No. When you know God, when you know Jesus, you live a life of radical faith. You have the courage to face things that will, will certainly defeat you. You live with, with a hope Even when you know all hope is lost, right? You buy the field even when the the army has invaded. You will not live a life just running from death, but you will spend your life out until you run out and you run into a grave. And that's okay because Jesus knew a grave, the hopelessness of it, and he overcame it. And if we know him, if we enter into covenant with him, we will know him too. Let's pray. God, this is a, um, an outlandish promise that, you, that we can know you. And you got to know, and like in my own life, and in many, I'm sure many people in this room, it's just that, that like first, that firsthand experience of you, God, it's, it's, it's so fleeting. And so I, just, I pray in this morning and this week, help us to know you, God. Write your law on our hearts. Strip away all the, the distractions, the things that, um, that prevent us from knowing you, God. And in, in our daily living, as we go about work, 
So we care for those who we work next to and alongside. So we spend time with our family at home. God, help us to know you, we pray and ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the, um, one of the things Jesus uh, gave to us in this covenant is this meal communion. The communion, it's not, it's not just some weird practice. You know, some guy invented it a couple hundred years. Jesus actually invented this, and he invented it at, uh, or, or uh, called us to do it in light of the covenant, that, that this is a covenant renewal ceremony in many ways, right? We don't, we don't want to just know Jesus um, casually. We want to know him in covenant, and communion is how we do it. It's, we're reminded that it was his body broken for us. It was his blood shed for us. That's how we enter into this covenant. It's why we can know he does not remember our sins um, any longer. And so I'm, I'm going to read the words of, of Jesus inviting us to this meal. Um, and then if you're a Christian, if you have faith, uh, you don't have to be a member of our church to, to take communion with us, but you can come in groups of four to six, uh, take the bread, dip it in the juice, and eat it together at the instruction of those serving you. If you need gluten-free, it's available on, on this side of the auditorium. But here Jesus' words and invitation to this meal. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As you're ready, we invite you to come.